I'm Nico van Dijk, the sports physio at Aspital Sports Medicine Hospital in Dawa, Qatar, and we are pleased to welcome Dr. Jayan Kemp to this BJSM podcast. Currently a research fellow at the Federation University of Australia and still very much involved in clinical practice, Dr. Kemp is an emerging voice in the field of sports medicine research. Her work focuses on hip joint health, especially femoral acetabular impingement, optimal surgical intervention for hip pathology, and the long-term implications of sports injury on joint health. Joe, welcome to this BJSM podcast. Hi, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Considering the problem of FAI and its effect on joint health, what makes a happy hip? Well, that's a really good question, and I think that's the question that a lot of people are trying to answer. We, in short, we don't, we're not a hundred percent sure on what makes a happy hip, but we're starting to get a much better idea than we had a few years ago. What we know is that if you have FAI, so that means you've got the FAI shape of hip, but you've also got symptoms associated with that, then you're going to be more likely to have uh, damage to your labrum, damage to the cartilage within your hip. You're much more likely to end up with hip osteoarthritis several years down the track. But by the same token, the prevalence of um, that FAI shape hip is quite high in people who don't have symptoms. So in athletic groups, around 50% of certain you know, certain types of athletes will have that shape of hip and in the general population, 20 to 25%. And so only a small percentage of those actually have FAI in that they have pain and symptoms um, with it. So I guess what's going to make those people happy? Well, we know that if you have less cartilage damage, then you're more likely to have um, less pain and I guess a happier hip. If you've got better range of motion in your hip or stronger hip muscles, um, better trunk muscle strength, better balance, better functional performance on things like squatting and things, you'll probably have a happier hip than those who don't. Um, if your x-rays don't show a lot of damage, then you're more likely to have a happier hip. And there's a little bit of evidence that suggests that if you've got FAI and you're under 40, you're less likely to have problems than if you're um, over 40. So all of those things sort of taken together suggest that that's what will make um, people with FAI uh, have a happier hip. So does it all start with FAI then, Joe? Well, again, this is another really interesting question, and I know there's some a lot of good research going on at the moment, some of it in um, Aspatar, that we don't really know what it is that creates FAI. So we know that if you have um, a certain genetic structure, so if you have a family history of FAI, you're more likely to have FAI yourself. There's been some really good work done by Rinche Agricola um, in the Netherlands that suggests that if you play a lot of sport that involves a lot of flexion and rotation loading, um, you're probably more likely to get FAI. That's the shape of the hip. And then within that, that group of people, some people are more likely to progress to symptoms and pain than others. And then within that group, some are more likely to go down the path of cartilage damage and labral damage and then eventually hip away. But we don't really know what it is about those people that makes them different to other people um, as to why some people go down the path of pain and then pathology and then ultimately degeneration in the joint versus others who can have the same shape but, um, but they don't end up having problems. Right, so then if we look at the evidence for arthroscopic surgical management of hypothology and in terms of outcomes and, and the, uh, the progression of, of hip disease, what do we know that, uh, about that evidence? 
So there's, look, there's a lot of evidence out there now, particularly in the sort of last five to ten years, there's been a real explosion of studies that are looking at FAI and hip arthroscopy. So there's loads of studies, but the quality of those studies is probably low to moderate at best. There's a lot of case series evidence, but we don't really have any um, good quality randomised controlled trial evidence at the moment as to... Um, the outcomes for surgery. But it looks as though, um, when you look at that case series evidence, it looks as though there's good outcomes for up to 10 years in patients who don't have their FAI operated on and sort of up to three to five years in patients who do have FAI surgery. And the reason for that difference in timelines is that the FAI surgery hasn't been going on for that long, so there's not that really long-term follow-up. Um, a bit like we said in the last question about the, the happy hips, if you don't have a lot of cartilage damage, your outcomes will be better. But if you've got sort of grade three to four cartilage damage at the time of surgery, you're less likely to do well. If you have on your pre-op x-rays, if there are signs of joint space narrowing or osteophytes, um, you're less likely to do well. And again, if you're aged over 40, your outcomes are less likely to be good. But as I said, we don't have any RC RCT evidence, so we don't have good level one evidence to compare hip arthroscopy to, um, to no hip arthroscopy, and there's not really any evidence to show whether or not hip arthroscopy changes the progression of hip joint disease in that some of those people, as we said earlier, with FAI will go on to develop pathology. No one's actually shown whether or not doing an arthroscopy changes that progression or whether you're... Once you've got the pathology, you're on the train to arthritis no matter what intervention you have. So does the cartilage damage come into the equation when we consider whether someone is suitable for surgery? That's a really good question. The difficulty with that is actually accurately identifying or quantifying the degree of cartilage damage prior to surgery. So if, if there are changes on the plain x-rays, then you can be certain that there will be a fairly large amount of cartilage damage um, already in the hip and I think that's why people who have the, um, the degenerative change on plain x-ray don't do so well. MRI um, is reasonable at quantifying cartilage damage and it's getting better but um, unfortunately often you won't know the degree of cartilage damage until someone goes to surgery. So that makes it difficult to educate patients um, regarding what their expected outcomes are likely to be depending on the degree of cartilage damage. So Joe, you've touched on this already, but then or do we have evidence that uh, we should follow the non-surgical route for these patients? Um, I wish I could say yes, we do, but as a physio, but unfortunately at the moment I think the evidence for the non-surgical treatments for FAI is even less substantial than the evidence for, um, for surgery. So again, we have absolutely no RCT evidence at all that non-surgical treatment is effective for FAI. The best degree of ed evidence that we have is um, taking an impairments-based approach, so looking at what sort of physical impairments these patients with FAI have and then using those in a targeted rehab program. So what we know is that patients with FAI do have reduced range of motion, particularly in flexion and internal rotation. They seem to have reduced strength in all of their hip muscle groups, but in particular the hip abductors adductors, um, extensors and external rotators appear to be the most important. They have poor balance, they have poor performance on squatting tasks, um, they appear to have changes in their gait patterns and things. So when we know this, we can try and design our non-surgical programs um, to try and improve those things because if we can improve those things, we may be able to improve the symptoms that these people have and you know their function and their ability to play sport and things. But no one has yet shown that 
that targeting those things in a rehab program is actually effective, more effective than surgery, equally effective as surgery, more effective than doing nothing. So we don't know. Um, so in terms of that then, um, I know your work has looked at uh, outcomes uh, for, for these patients and comparing outcomes. What are those outcomes that you investigated? So what we looked at, we've done a few different studies. We um, have looked at outcomes in terms of the patient reported outcomes, so the questionnaire-based outcomes, so things like um, pain, function, quality of life. And what we found is that um, the outcomes are not as good for people who have significant cartilage damage compared to those that don't have. So those that don't have cartilage damage appear to do better. But I think the important thing around the outcomes is that um, while these patients seem to improve after hip arthroscopy surgery, they don't ever get back to the same levels as a healthy control as a person who's never had a hip problem. So for example, when you look at these outcome scores, if they're scored from 0 to 100 where the 100 is the best possible score, um, healthy controls always score up in you know, 95, 97, 100 points. What we find with the hip arthroscopy patients is while their scores may go um, from 60 to 75 or 80 after surgery, they never ever go back to that 100. So often patients will go into surgery expecting to be fixed and expecting to have a brand new hip. And it's really important that they understand before their surgery that that's not going to happen, that while they will improve, they are still going to have a hip that will give them trouble from time to time. Now, as a clinician, I often wonder about using questionnaires, and I think uh, my question there would be, does it really drive our clinical practice? Is it, is it useful to us to really look at these scores and help us guide the management of the patient? That's, yeah, look, this is a really interesting thing and I think as physios um, and you know, sports medicine clinicians and things, we, we're very focused on impairment. So we're really interested in the things that we can change. So things like strength and function and how far you can jump and, and you know, how far you can run and those sorts of things. Um, and in the research that we've done, we've found that those things um, are impacted by, by FAI and by hip arthroscopy surgery. But it's, I think it's important to understand what's important to the patients. And when you talk to patients, they may not um, they may not care about how far they can hop, but they're more interested in whether or not they can play with their kids, or whether they can um, climb the flight of stairs that they need to climb, you know, to their bedroom every night, all those sorts of things. And one of the reasons why patient good patient reported outcome measures have been used in the literature, particularly in recent times, is that they are supposed to be targeted to the patient, and they're supposed to be they're supposed to ask the patient um, questions that matter to them and identify things that matter to them. And when a good um, questionnaire is constructed or a good patient reported outcome measure, it's really important that the patients were involved in the construction of that questionnaire so that the questions are asking things that are important to the patient and not just questions that the physio or the sports doctor or the orthopaedic surgeon thinks is important for the patients. Uh, in a 2014 BJSM editorial, you made some interesting comparisons between hip arthroscopy and knee arthroscopy. So are we just experiencing the same kind of hype in the hip as we had in the knee? I think we are to a point. I think um, if you look at the numbers of hip arthroscopy around the world, they are rapidly increasing. So particularly in the last five to ten years, we've seen a doubling of numbers here in Australia. In the US, some of the studies suggest that the numbers have increased 18-fold in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. So there is a rapid increase. Um, but what I, what I think is that 
perhaps clinicians, so you know, good surgeons and sports doctors and physios are being a little more cautious um, and maybe have learnt from the lessons um, of knee arthroscopy that surgery shouldn't be the first port of call for everyone and that you know, outcomes are not guaranteed. So I think certainly in certain circles it is quite fashionable and popular but I also think that um, clinicians are, are more aware of the evidence and around of the evidence and I think are hoping to be able to identify patients who perhaps benefit from the surgery but also identify those patients that won't benefit and um, you know, ensure that we give the patients the best possible outcome that we can. And then referencing your previous answer, using outcome questionnaires might help us, um, aid us in doing this. Yeah, that's right. And so um, if we can, I think the important things, first of all, we have to prove that uh, that surgery, but also that non-surgical treatments are efficacious so that they do actually make a difference to patients, but more importantly, make a difference to the patients in the things that matter to the patients. And, and that's where the patient out, that's where using the right, a good quality patient reported outcome measures is really important so that you can see whether or not the patient, whether or not we're doing helps the patient, but particularly helps them in the things that they want to achieve and ensure that patient satisfaction is high, you know, whether it's a surgical treatment or a non-surgical treatment. No, you know, ensure the patient is well educated, that they have good expectations and so that they, they're, they're happy with the outcomes that they get. So do you think we can differentiate between athletes and non-athletes uh, in the management of these patients? Um, that's a really good question and we do, what we do know is that athletes do get back to sport after this surgery and you know, the return to sport levels um, are quite high in certain patient groups, um, which is great. But one of the things that we don't really know is whether or not the athletes are going back to sport too soon and maybe that's something that you know, helps accelerate the degenerative process a little bit like in the ACL. There's now some thoughts around the ACL that if patients are pushed back to sport too soon, maybe that's one of the things that um, speeds up the, the process to osteoarthritis. And, you know, I've heard examples clinically of athletes who go back go back to their sport at a really high level really soon because they have a final or they have, you know, a world championships or those sorts of things. And people, um, they see that in the headlines and they see, you know, how it exciting that is and how great things are for that athlete, you know, that they've had surgery and recovered so quickly. But what they don't see is the amount of uh, medical treatment and injections and things that they need to get to that point. And then also how um, it impacts them afterwards, how they, you know, can't do anything for weeks and weeks after that performance. So I think we just need to be careful and we don't really know what the optimal return to sport is and, you know, whether we should be holding people back a little bit more than what we actually are. Adding on to that, and as a final take-home message for the listeners, uh, what approach should we take uh, when uh, we treat a patient that presents with FAI? Look, um, I think it's really important that we get a really good understanding of how much that FAI is impacting on the patient. So I think the first thing that's um, important to understand is to get a good understanding of the severity of the FAI and if we can the um, extent of pathology because that will really guide us in the treatment that we should be recommending for patients so that if we know there's a lot of pathology there already we may be a little bit more cautious in recommending surgery than if, if there's a limited amount of pathology and it's important too um, as we said earlier that there are a large number of people who have a camp shape hip who don't have symptoms so it's really important that we don't confuse that and we don't start doing things to patients who actually don't have symptoms, just happen to have a particular shape of hip. Once we've got a good understanding of the um, pathology, that will really help guide our treatment. If um, 
I personally think that patients should probably trial a conservative or a non-surgical treatment first before they go to surgery because we often clinically see that these patients may get to where they want to get in terms of their function and their outcomes. And the best way to design a rehab program is to get a good understanding of their impairment, so accurately assess their function, assess their strength and range of motion and target our, our treatments towards that. Um, but, you know, you do get patients who won't don't respond to conservative treatment and who do want to try surgery and in that case it's really important that we have good relationships with you know some excellent orthopedic surgeons out there and give the patient a real a realistic expectation on how long their recovery will be what their outcomes are likely to be um, and that as we said earlier that they will probably improve with surgery but they may not ever get back to someone who's never had a hip problem um, and I think that's really really important that, that they do that so that they don't go in with false hope and false expectations and then and then they're disappointed when they still have some ongoing problems um, after surgery. That's great. A big thank you to uh, Dr. Joanne Kemp for joining us today on this BJSM podcast. Uh, we look forward to your continued efforts uh, at the Australian Centre for Research into Injury and Sport and its Prevention, or ACRISP, uh, in this area, Joe. and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nicola. It's been great to chat to you. Thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast. For easy access to other emerging voices in sports medicine like Joe, look for the BJSM mobile app available for iOS and Android.